Daniel chapter 4, if you've got your copy of God's Word. It's just good to be together, isn't it? I mean, I'm telling you, I've always felt like with all that we've been through collectively as a body, as believers, as individual men and women, uh, God is at work in our hearts and lives. He's at work in the world around us. He's at work in our nation. And uh, it's just a wonderful thing to know that um, the world has not fallen apart. Our God is in control. He's in perfect control. And the church belongs to him. The church is going to emerge from these difficult times where we've not been meeting to, I believe with all of my heart, a more empowered church, a more focused church, a church that recognizes that we have a mission, a church that recognizes that time is short, eternity is long, and men and women, there are plenty of people in our families, neighbors, people we live beside that don't know Jesus that desperately need to hear the life-changing message that our God, he is a chain breaker. And so we've been entrusted with the precious message and man, may we declare it while we have time and opportunity. Daniel chapter four, I wanna return to this passage where we last left off in our study of the book of Daniel. Over the last several weeks, I've been in this book of the Old Testament and the message of Daniel is a very important message for our time because It's the message that God is sovereign over history. And that's an important reminder for us, especially in light of what we've all been experiencing. Daniel teaches us that God is sovereign both over nations and he's sovereign over individuals. And this was a very crucial lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. Nebuchadnezzar had been the king of Babylon. And in Daniel's day, he was the most powerful man in the land. He was a proud man. Uh, Just as powerful as he was, he was that much more proud and and arrogant and thought that he was in control, perhaps, of his own destiny and the destiny of those who made up his kingdom. But Daniel chapter 4 tells the story of how Nebuchadnezzar came to a place of true spiritual understanding. One day, Nebuchadnezzar was at the top The very next day, he hit rock bottom. And this king who reigned over a golden kingdom literally became a madman who lived his life like an animal. And it was an act of judgment from God in order to humble the king's pride and bring him to a place of repentance. I've been reading a book um, over the last week or so by an author. His name is David Brooks. And this book was released about five years ago, but the name of the book is, is called The Road to Character. And in the introduction of this book, David Brooks distinguishes between what he calls resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. Resume virtues, these are the ones that you list on your resume, the skills and the qualifications that you have that you believe could contribute to your unique personal success in some profession. Eulogy virtues go much deeper. If resume virtues are those virtues that are surface level virtues, eulogy virtues go deeper. These are the virtues that um, get talked about at your funeral. And so basically in the book, he, he goes through history and he mentions several different people from history who had profound changes in their life and there was a shift. They shifted from living for resume virtues 
to eulogy virtues. And usually what brought about the shift in their life was a very painful experience in their life. And we live in a world that prioritizes those resume virtues, what we look like, uh, what others say about us, our skill set, that kind of thing. But eulogy virtues, this is the character of the heart. And folks, the Bible tells us that God is deeply concerned about the character of the heart. He looks upon the heart, not the surface. That's a, that's a lesson that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has to learn. And so what God does in his life is he puts him in a very painful experience uh, to humble him and break his pride. And so this proud man becomes a very humble man, and it's in the midst of a painful crisis that God does something deep down within Nebuchadnezzar's heart and life. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16 that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, in the New Testament, James says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Nebuchadnezzar is an illustration of how that's the case. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the one who is humble and recognizes his or her need for God's grace. So Daniel chapter 4, that's, that's where you've turned to. We've already dealt with the, uh, the first 18 verses of this chapter. But basically, the entire, the entire chapter is written in the form of an official document from a head of state. It's Nebuchadnezzar who's writing to those who made up his empire, and he wants everybody in his empire to know what God had done in his life. And so he begins in verse 1 by addressing all peoples, nations, and languages. He wants everybody in his kingdom to know that he's had a profound change of heart. And in this chapter, he's going to tell us how he's come to have this change of heart. And so basically, in the first 18 verses, as Nebuchadnezzar goes back into his life and he talks about this experience he had, uh, he had a dream. It was a dream that greatly disturbed him. Uh, in his dream, he saw a tree that was a massive tree, uh, and the height of this tree grew into the heavens so that it was visible to the whole world. The tree had beautiful leaves, abundant fruit that nourished others and provided shade, and then the king says that he saw in his dream what he describes as being a watcher or an angelic being who issues this decree for the tree to be chopped down. Uh, the stump was left in the ground, bound with a chain of iron. And by the time you get to verse 15, you'll notice in this dream there's a shift uh, in, in pronouns uh, where the tree is no longer referred to as an it, but him. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let the mind of the beast be given to him. And then in verse 17, in this dream, the angel states the purpose behind the vision and says that this sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the word of the holy ones. Listen to this. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And that's a statement that is mentioned at least five times in the 37 verses of this chapter. That the living would know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men. He gives it to whom he will. He sets it over the lowliest of men. So 
really, this is a vision then that had been designed by God, given to Nebuchadnezzar, to show this proud king that there is a greater, higher king who rules over the affairs of men. And so Nebuchadnezzar called for his advisors to explain this dream. They couldn't do it. Finally, he calls for Daniel. And in verse 18, he says, this is the dream that I had. You, Belteshazzar, that's the Babylonian name for Daniel. He's saying, you, Daniel, tell me the interpretation. All the wise men of my kingdom, they're not able to do it, but I know that you're able. Now listen to this. He says, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. That was simply his way of recognizing the fact that there was something different about Daniel. We would say that Daniel's a spirit-filled man. Daniel's a man who has knowledge of the one true God of heaven. This sets him apart from everyone else uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's administration. He's a believer. And so as such, he's in a position to explain the truth. He's empowered, gifted by God to explain this vision to Nebuchadnezzar. And it all had to do with his pride being humbled. Now, I want to pick up in verse number 19, and I want us to begin reading. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and all its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven your dominion to the end of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. That's basically seven years. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, your dwelling will be with beasts of the field, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." So basically, Daniel is saying, this dream is from God, and let me tell you what God's about to do in your life, king. He's going to humble you. You're going to be driven from society. You're going to be given a seven-year temporary period of insanity where you're going to live like an animal until you are aware of the fact that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men. So he's saying God's going to cut you down to size. God's going to bring you to this place of brokenness and humility where you acknowledge that there is a God in heaven. And just as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. 
Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Daniel's calling on the king to repent. He's simply saying, while you have opportunity, God has given you a sufficient warning, and that warning is simply this. Your pride is going to be your downfall. Uh, Your pride is going to lead you to a place of destruction. Humble yourself while you have an opportunity. Don't wait until God has to humble you, which, by the way, it's always better that we humble ourselves rather than being humbled by God. While we have opportunity, while we have uh, an opportunity from God to humble ourselves, to cast ourselves upon his mercy, man, we ought to seize that opportunity. Don't wait for God to have to humble you. So he says, break off your sin, practice righteousness, your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. The 28th verse says that all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Well, this guy has an eye problem that no optometrist could ever help, right? Me, my, I, mine. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Now in your mind, imagine what this guy looked like. I mean, if ever there was a werewolf story, this is it right here. I get, in my mind, I see this terrifying picture of this man who has gone insane and looks like a beast. And really, here's what's happening. God is turning him inside out, and the beastly character that was within him is now made manifest for all to see. And that's often what God will do when he humbles a person. He will turn a person inside out so that that person is able to see their own poverty of spirit, their own bankrupt condition. And verse 34, thank God God doesn't leave Nebuchadnezzar in this pitiful state. Because the Bible says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, isn't that a profound change? 
I mean, here we go from seeing a man at the beginning of the chapter who is an arrogant, proud, pompous individual that now, by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, here's a man who's broken. Here's a man who realizes that the source of his sufficiency, it's not himself, but heaven. Here's a man who is now looking to heaven. Here is a man who's come to understand that there is a God in heaven and he's able to walk or he's able to humble those who walk in pride. So Nebuchadnezzar is cut down to size, and I want to preach from that subject. Well, in this chapter, we've sort of approached it with four separate headings, and I gave you the first two headings uh, last week. In the first three verses, which basically serve as the introduction to this letter that the king writes, uh, we looked at the king's testimony. And really, all of this chapter is the king's testimony where he's simply telling the story to his kingdom. Here's what God has done for me. Y'all need to know that a profound change has happened in my life, and I've just got to tell you about it. I would imagine that the kingdom probably knew that for the previous seven years, the king had gone mad. It probably was no secret. Well, now he has been restored, but he's humbled. God has done a great work in his life, and he wants to tell the story to everyone in his empire. And so all of this is a testimony. And, and really what he does is he works his way backward. He gives the introduction in the first three verses, and then he begins to work backward to tell people how he came to have this profound change, how he'd come to this conclusion that there is a God in heaven, there is a king of heaven who rules over the affairs of men, and this king is able to bring low those who exalt themselves against him. The second thing that we considered had to do with the king's troubles uh, his troubles began when he started having nightmares that he didn't fully understand. And the dream involved a massive tree. The height reached into heaven. He saw an angelic being come and issue this decree, chop down the tree. Uh, cut this tree down to size so that nothing but the stump remains in the ground. And let that stump be chained with fetters, with bronze and iron chains. And so all of it was designed by God to basically tell Nebuchadnezzar, here's what I'm about to do in your life. I'm going to humble you. You're going to experience a profound act of humiliation so that you'll learn the lesson that the most high rules over the kingdom of men. And all of this greatly troubled Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't fully understand the meaning of the dream. He turns to his advisors. They can't explain to him the meaning of the dream. And finally, he turns to the man of God. Finally, he turns to the one who knew this God of heaven, the one who worshiped the Most High God, and Daniel then gives King Nebuchadnezzar an interpretation. So the third heading that I want you to consider with me from this chapter is this, the king's trial. This trying experience that he's going to have, it's going to come as the result of his lack of repentance, his refusal to humble himself, all that happened in the dream is going to happen to him. And that's basically what Daniel says, beginning in verse 19. So you'll notice with me first the interpretation of the dream from verse 19 through verse 26. Upon being told the dream, verse 19 says that Daniel himself was bothered for a period of time. He was dismayed, greatly alarmed. So now you've got two men who are bothered by this same dream. Nebuchadnezzar is bothered because he doesn't know what the dream means. Daniel, on the other hand, he's bothered because he does know what it means. And so seeing that Daniel was bothered, uh, Nebuchadnezzar offers him some assurance. 
It basically was his way of telling Daniel not to be afraid to tell him the truth. He's saying, Daniel, I know that you're different. I know that you know God. Tell me what this dream means. Don't be afraid to tell me the truth. And Daniel says, listen, may this dream be for those who hate you, those who are your enemies. Daniel knew what the dream meant because he loved the king. He didn't want to see the king experience the calamity that the dream foreshadowed. And so the news was not good. Daniel knew that he had a difficult message to deliver, but faithfulness to God required that he deliver it nonetheless. And so he then gives this interpretation. He says, the tree that you saw, that tree is you, O king. He says that God had exalted the king and given him a kingdom that had grown to fill the earth. But because his heart was lifted up with pride, God was about to cut the tree down to size. God was about to humble Nebuchadnezzar. It would involve him losing his sanity for a period of seven years until he recognized that heaven rules. And so basically what Daniel does is he, he hones in on the root issue in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And you don't know what the issue was? His pride. His unbelief. The fact that he had been unwilling to acknowledge that heaven rules. The fact that he thought he was at the top, that, that, that he was accountable to no one. He was living life however he saw fit. He felt like Babylon was the result of his own skill and achievements and accomplishments, but he failed to give glory to the God of heaven because he's a proud man. And in this way, you could say that he's sort of representative of every single human being who's ever lived. Because we come into this world in this default state of lostness, pride, unbelief, the fact that men and women go about their business and live their lives apart from the knowledge that heaven rules. Listen, do you have knowledge of the fact that heaven rules? You've got plans for your life and you've got this that you want to see achieved for yourself and that and that kind of thing. Let me ask you this question. Do you realize really that heaven rules? that you are subject and accountable to your creator and that one day you're going to stand and give an account for your life before Christ. But you see, pride, lust, and sin leads us to live our lives only for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the sinful pride of life. That's where Nebuchadnezzar had been. And so this dreadful illness that's going to come upon the king is going to be an indication of God's judgment and discipline in his life. God's going to turn him inside out so that his own beastly character would be made manifest. Listen, pride doesn't make a man. Pride breaks a man. Pride sets him on a collision course with the judgment of one in heaven who resists the proud. Now that's the interpretation that Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar. Now, notice, secondly, the exhortation of the prophet. The interpretation of the dream is followed up by the exhortation of the prophet in verse 27. Daniel makes a personal appeal here to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. He's saying, listen to what I'm about to say. Because I deeply love you, because I'm deeply concerned for you, please, listen. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed so that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel's calling upon him to repent. 
Daniel's being honest and straightforward. I imagine that as king, Nebuchadnezzar was probably surrounded by those who only told him what he wanted to hear. There probably was no shortage of advisors who wanted to flatter the king, perhaps because they wanted a promotion from the king. Which, by the way, it's easy for us to surround ourselves by those who tell us only what we want to hear. You're the type of person that can't handle any criticism. Do you have anybody in your life that can tell you the honest truth, the painful truth, even though it's a tough pill to swallow? Thank God for Daniel here. He doesn't back down and shy away from the painful truth, but he tells the truth. In Daniel, the king had found someone who would tell him the God's honest truth, even though it was painful to hear. One person has said that Daniel gives us a, a, an excellent pattern of how to preach to people of how to preach even the judgment of God to people who need to be warned. There's an application here as it relates to telling the truth to others. What does it involve? Well, to begin with, in our lives as believers, it involves a submissive will. You know, God's given us the ministry of reconciliation. The word of the gospel has been committed to us as believers. The ministry of reconciliation whereby we preach whereby we witness, whereby we're to make disciples, and it involves us communicating the truth of God to those that don't believe. And to do that means that as a believer, I've got to have a submissive will. It requires me being sold out, lock, stock, and barrel in obedience to King Jesus. Daniel's submitted to God here. Before he's ever submitted to Nebuchadnezzar as his earthly king, he's submitted to the God of heaven as his heavenly king. He's willing to tell the truth, even though it may not be popular. And then notice it, it involves a genuine concern. Daniel is motivated by a genuine sense of concern for Nebuchadnezzar. I, I believe with all my heart that he genuinely loved the guy. He didn't want to see this judgment come upon Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he'd spent years as one of the king's advisors. He'd probably grown somewhat close to Nebuchadnezzar. He's genuinely concerned for people. Listen, telling the truth to someone means that you love that person. And we don't really love a person if we're not willing to tell the truth to that person. And then it always involves a humble approach, a submissive will, genuine concern, and a humble approach. Daniel is humble in the way that he goes about interpreting this message to King Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't avoid the issue of the king's sin, but he tackles it head on. He pleads with the king to repent. He's not rude, he's not insensitive, but neither is he dishonest. He's not going to coddle King Nebuchadnezzar. He's not going to adopt this modern approach of affirming the king as merely a victim of his circumstances. He's not encouraging Nebuchadnezzar to blame everybody else for his problems, but rather he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, the buck stops with you. You're personally responsible for your pride. You're personally accountable to the God of heaven. And listen, you can't get right with God until you first accept personal responsibility and accountability before God. As long as your problems are everybody else's problems and not your own, you're not yet to the place of repentance in your life. You've not yet experienced the humbling of your pride. Pride leads us to want to blame everybody else. Pride leads us to want to come up ex with excuses for our sin and shift the blame, change the topic, and try to point out everybody else's weaknesses rather than dealing with my own sin. 
That's what Nebuchadnezzar has got to do. In order for him to be right with God, he's got to get honest before God. And that's what Daniel is saying here. He's saying, listen, this tree you saw in your dream, it's you, O king. Kind of reminds me of the way that Nathan the prophet confronted King David much earlier in Israel's history. 2 Samuel chapter 11, you know that uh, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, had had her husband murdered, thought that he could get away with it, had kind of concealed it, even though he was being eaten alive with conviction in his heart. Chapter 12, the Bible says that Nathan the prophet goes to David, and he tells him the story about a man who was wealthy and had all of these flocks and herds, but a traveler came to stay with the man, and so the man goes to the poor neighbor and steals his only little lamb so that he could slaughter it and feed this traveler. It was a hypothetical situation. It was a story that Nathan told, but... David is incensed. He's angry. He said, this guy's got to pay the price. When you're full of pride, it sure is easy to see the faults in everybody else's life. It's easy to see the splinters in everybody else's eyes, but ignore the two-by-four sticking out of your own eye. And you know what Nathan the prophet says to David? He says, you're the man. And like, not in a good way, you're the man. He says, you're the man, bad way. You're the one who's responsible. You're the one who's done this heinous act. You're the one who's sinned against God. And that's what Daniel is saying here. He's saying, King, the tree that's cut down, this is you. You've been proud. You've been disobedient. You've been unrighteous. God's going to deal with you. And so I urge you, while you have opportunity, repent, turn from your sin, cast yourself upon the mercies of the God of heaven. So thank God for those in our lives who don't soften the message. Maybe one of the reasons why there's perhaps very little conversion growth in the church today is that there's not enough preaching that leads someone to be convicted of their sin. Salvation is being converted to Christ, and you've got to be convicted before you will ever truly be converted, and it's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to bring about that conviction. You ever been just deeply convicted of your sin and your need for God's grace, your need for His forgiveness? Has you ever just been so, I mean, just absolutely, you've been eat up with conviction in your heart because of something that you know is not right? Thank God for that because it's a warning sign from God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit who's taking the truth of God's law and he's bringing it to bear upon your conscience and upon your heart so that you have opportunity and time to flee to Jesus, to get that sin under the blood and be forgiven and to know the peace of God. So the king's trial here. You've got the exhortation of the prophet, the interpretation of the dream, and then notice the realization of the king there in verse number 28. Now look at this, verse 28, it's a sobering verse. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. He had been sufficiently warned, Daniel had told him the truth, but sadly there was no repentance to be found in his life. In the very next verse, verse 29, says that an entire year went by. He had, an, he had ample opportunity to live his life differently, didn't he? Twelve long months go by. And every day, for 365 days, Nebuchadnezzar had an opportunity to repent of his pride. He had an opportunity to turn from his sin and get right before God, but he chose not to. And perhaps he mistook the 
delay of judgment with the cancellation of judgment. He thought that just because judgment had been delayed, that perhaps judgment would be canceled. You know, Peter says the same thing is going to happen in the last days. Second Peter chapter 3, he says that they're going to become, they're going to be scoffers who are going to scoff in the last days, following their own sinful desires. They're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? You Christians have preached for decades and centuries that Christ is going to come again. Where is he? I don't see him. And they're going to use it as an opportunity to think that just because judgment has been delayed, that judgment has been canceled. And Peter goes on and he says, you know what? He said, these people forget that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief. It's coming like a thief. God is not slack, as some consider slackness. But God is patient. He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why is it that God gives Nebuchadnezzar a whole year? Why is it that in Noah's generation, he gave Noah's generation 120 years before the flood came? Why is it that in Israel's day, before they were carried away into captivity, uh, God would raise up prophet after prophet after prophet to warn the people of their sin and coming judgment? I'll tell you why. It's because God is patient. God is kind. And the Bible says it's the goodness of God and it's the patience of God that leads men to repent. Thank God that he's been patient in my life. But make no mistake about it, the day of the Lord is going to come. Nebuchadnezzar's day is going to come. The judgment that had been decreed is going to come. And when it comes, it takes the king totally by surprise, even though it shouldn't have. All of this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. The end of the year, he's walking on the roof of his palace. In verse 30, he has a conversation with himself. Is not this great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. Look at this Babylon the great and I built it all by myself. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't learned a thing. He had been warned, but he had not listened. Maybe he thought that he was beyond reach. But while the proud words were still in his mouth, a voice comes from heaven that says, Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's spoken. The kingdom is departed from you. And what had only been the stuff of his nightmares up until that point then became reality in his life. It's like Lon Chaney and the Wolfman here. I mean, he's driven from society. He eats grass like an animal. His body is wet with the dew of heaven. His hair grows long. His nails become like talons. He loses his sanity and was forced to live like an animal for the next seven years of his life. Now, let me tell you, this doesn't just come out of the blue. This isn't just something that happens that can be explained medically in his life. This is the supernatural judgment of God in his life as God is turning him inside out. And it's directly related to what happens to a mind that is totally preoccupied with itself. One person has expressed it this way. When the gaze of a person is turned inwardly upon himself, what he is or what he's not, what she has or what she doesn't have, then that person is on a path that will lead to self-destruction. 
Keep your finger in Daniel 4. Go to Romans 1 for just a second. And notice what the Apostle Paul says about this as far as human society is concerned. The first chapter of Romans, he describes how society just spirals into decadence and depravity, chaos as it really becomes unraveled. What is it that leads to the unraveling of society according to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1? Look down at verse 28. It simply says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Older translations say it this way. Since they did not retain God in their thinking. Since they found no place for God in their thoughts. Since they found no place for God in their collective society. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge that heaven rules. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And all of the sins and the litany of sins that are mentioned that are characteristic of a society that has rejected the knowledge of the truth, at the heart of the issue is man's pride. At the heart of the issue is unbelief. It's Nebuchadnezzar's problem. Do you not find it ironic that at the same time our national narcissistic levels are at an all-time high? We're also at the same time morally and spiritually a wreck as a nation. Our opinions of ourselves have never been greater, have never been higher, but at the same time we're losing our minds as a nation of people. What does it come from? It comes from rejecting the knowledge of God. It comes from thinking that you're at the center of the universe. It comes from failure to acknowledge that there is a God in heaven. It comes from rejection of the truth that heaven rules. Lack of humility. By the way, this is not just true of a lost world, but man, it can be true in our lives even within the church, can it? We get too big for our britches. We think we've arrived. We think we don't need anything. Well, Jesus had a word for a church that thought that it didn't need anything in Revelation, didn't he? You think you're rich? You think you've got all you need? You don't realize how miserable you really are, how blind, how naked you really are. I don't think for one second that the last six months of our lives have been by accident. Neither do I think that this has simply just been an assault on the church. I believe that it's been divinely orchestrated for a purpose. And I really believe that God has turned us inside out often to show us how proud of the people we really are. You say, I don't, I'm not pride. I'm not full of pride. I don't have any pride issues in my life going on. How's your prayer life? Because your prayer life is directly correlated with pride and self-sufficiency. If I'm subtly operating with a self-sufficient attitude, I'm not going to be a prayer warrior. I'm not going to pray. Why would I pray? I've got this thing figured out. Are you easily offended? We live in a nation now where everybody's offended by everything. Are you easily offended? If you're easily offended, that's an issue of pride in your life. 
The Bible says as a believer, listen, I died when Christ died. How can a dead man be offended by anything? Are you listening to me? And now, the life which I now possess, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not about me. Life has never been about me. It's not about me now. It never will be about me. That's the attitude of a believer. That's the attitude that the church ought to have. It's not about us. It's about our God. It's about his kingdom. It's about his purposes. It's about his mission. It's about the gospel. Do you like shifting the blame to everybody else for your problems? If so, pride is a real issue. Do you play the comparison game with everybody else in your life? Well, I'm better than she is, or I'm better than he is. I wish I had what they had. I wish I looked like she looked. This all comes from a heart that's full of pride. It's Nebuchadnezzar's problem, y'all. It's our problem. It's my problem. But thank God for his mercy. And often his mercy comes in disguise. It does in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Because the very act of judgment that God decrees upon his life is the very mercy of God in his life to bring him to a place of repentance. He's broken. He's driven from society. Lives like an animal. Can you imagine what an embarrassing ordeal that must have been for this guy who was at the top of the totem pole? Now he becomes the low man on the totem pole. It's a complete reversal. But it's the act of God in his life, and in that way it's the greatest thing that ever could have happened to him. Sometimes the thing that we fear the most, the thing that we regret the most, may just be the very thing that God has used the most in our lives to bring us to the place where he wants us to be. Notice one final thing, and I'm through with this. The king's transformation. He's been troubled. He's gone through a trying experience. But aren't you glad that our God is a God of mercy and grace? And aren't you glad that that's not all she wrote for Nebuchadnezzar? Living like an animal, chained like a wild man. Listen, this is not, this is not the end for him. God is bringing him to a place of brokenness. God is bringing him to a place where God can do a transforming work of grace in his life. Look at verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. I praised and I honored and I worshiped him. This is a profound change that's happened in his life. How has he changed? I'll tell you how he's changed. First, it involved a change in his focus. You look at where his gaze is directed at the beginning of the ordeal compared to where it is at the end. In verse 30, where, where are his eyes? He's on his palace top. He's, he's on his rooftop looking out over Babylon. He's looking horizontally around at everything else. in life. He said, man, I'm the guy, man. I, I've, I've arrived. He's looking at the stuff of earth. He's looking at himself. He sees himself as being the center of the universe. He's looking horizontal. But you see, by the time you get to verse 34, there's a shift in his focus. And notice how his focus is toward heaven. Verse 34, I lifted my eyes to heaven. Seven years before, I was looking around at Babylon. Now, I'm looking up at heaven. I lifted my eyes to heaven. And by the way, 
This then leads to a change in his fortune. Not just his focus, but his fortune. You'll notice that it was only as he lifts his eyes to heaven that his reason returns to him. That's so opposite of how we tend to operate, isn't it? If you can explain things to me, and if I can understand it, then I will believe it. That's not how it works in God's economy. God's economy is you simply believe the word. You believe the gospel even though you may not understand it, even though you may not be able to explain it. You believe. And guess what? Reason follows faith. Understanding follows faith. It's not the other way around. Understanding doesn't lead to faith. Faith leads to understanding. Nebuchadnezzar says, I looked to heaven and my reason returned to me. I had spiraled into the abyss. I had descended into chaos. I was a wreck of a man. Oh, but I lifted my eyes to the heavens and the God of heaven did something for me. He changed me. My reason returned to me. For the first time in my life, I was able to see things clearly. And from his life, we come to learn this all-important lesson that deliverance comes only from looking away from ourselves, looking away from our stuff, looking away from our sin and our besetting issues, looking away from the junk of this world and looking to Jesus Christ. He doesn't find salvation through looking inwardly in himself. He doesn't find salvation through looking outwardly through substitute saviors. He finds it by looking upwardly to the God of heaven. So it's a change in his focus, a change in his fortune. God restores his kingdom back to him. And ultimately, it's a change in his faith. Look at verse 37. He says, now I praise and honor the king of heaven. Now I'm worshiping the God of heaven. Now I realize that his works are right. His ways are just. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a testimony. I mean, do you have that kind of testimony where you can say God did something in my life? Beyond the shadow of all doubt, I know that God has done something in my life. I thought things were going well. I thought I was a pretty good, decent person. But then, man, God really began to ring my bell. He really began to deal with me with my sin and the depth of my need and my spiritual bankruptcy. But God did something in my... He showed me through perhaps the pain of life, through the disappointment of life, the disillusionment of life. He brought me to a knowledge of himself. He brought me to the place of understanding that he is my sufficiency, that he is my salvation, that he is my identity, that he's the one who makes me valuable. Wow. So God strips all of Nebuchadnezzar's self-sufficiency away. And man, if he's ever going to do something in your life and my life, he's got to do the same thing. There's a Scottish theologian by the name of Ian Duguid who said something just so powerful. I've got to read it to you, but listen to this. He said, discontent and disaster or at least profound personal discomfort. These are often the necessary precursors of spiritual growth and change. And I look back in my life. I've been saved since 1989. 
And the greatest seasons of growth and change in my life have always followed some type of deep hurt, some type of profound disappointment in my life. Whether it be something that was the result of my own actions, whether it be the result of something that happened, God uses the pain, the discontent, and the discomfort, and the disillusionment of life, the experiences of life to turn us inside out to show us just how much we need His grace and His mercy. The good goes on and says, as long as we're comfortable and at ease in this world, we're not ready to examine our hearts and institute deep changes. But on the other hand, when God disturbs the calm waters of our lives, we begin to be ready to seek different paths to pursue. And it's often when our career hopes are dashed, or our marriage relationship is in shreds, or the doctor announces that we only have a few more months to live, that we're finally persuaded to become serious about spiritual things. If that's true, however, it suggests that we should approach these troubled times of our lives with a far more positive outlook than we normally do. <laughs> these shattering experiences should prompt within us the expectation and hope that God is going to do something important in our lives. Because it's precisely through the storms of life that God will show us who we really are. And even more importantly, who He really is. Do you see yourself in the mirror of God's word this morning? Is your pride laid bare like Nebuchadnezzar's? The depth of your need? Are you made aware of just how much you need Jesus Christ and his grace? And the gospel? I pray, I pray so. Let's stand for prayer this morning. In Nebuchadnezzar, we've got the story of a proud king who was chopped down, cut down to size. And it's an illustration of how God resists the proud. But at the same time, the Bible also says that God gives grace to the humble. How is it that he's able to do that? Is it through our humbling of ourselves or through our humility that we ourselves somehow make ourselves worthy and that kind of thing. That's not what that means at all. The only reason that God is able to give grace to those who are humble is because there's a much greater king than Nebuchadnezzar who knew a glory that far surpassed Nebuchadnezzar's glory. And this king left heaven's glory surrounded by myriads of angels upon angels who for eternity past did nothing but sing his praises and this king came all the way to where we live. And in humility, he laid aside robes of glory, took on human flesh, lived among us as one of us, and yet he went to a cross and died. For me, for my pride. It wasn't Jesus' pride. He wasn't cut down for his pride. He was cut down for my pride and for your pride. He wasn't put to death for his own sin. He was put to death for my sin and your sin. And now salvation is available. God can give grace to the humble, those who recognize how needy they are, and they come to Jesus in repentance and faith.
No person is ever too bad. There's a lot of people who are too good, though. There are a lot of people who are too good. But there is no person too bad that our God can't save. But he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus today, if you've never been saved, then listen, right now, in an attitude of repentance and faith, let me just encourage you. Perhaps pray along these lines. Lord Jesus, I confess my sin. I need you and your forgiveness. I humble myself. I turn from my sin, and in faith, I look to you alone as my Savior, believing that you died for me on the cross, that you rose again from the dead. And Lord Jesus, I confess you as my Savior and as my Lord. And the Bible says that those who turn to Christ in faith need to go public with that faith through believer's baptism. Are you a baptized follower of Jesus Christ? If not, we want to help you follow the Lord in obedience. We'd love to talk to you about baptism. As we sing here in just a moment, I'll be here. Some of our other pastors, counselors, if you would go ahead and begin moving to the front, we'd love to pray with you. Or you can contact us later in the week if that would work best. But Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you're a God who does wonderful things and you work in ways, Lord, that we often can't see. And you use the painful circumstances of life, Lord, to strip us of our self-sufficiency, to bring us to a place of brokenness where you and you alone can fill up the emptiness within. God, I believe that you've done that in the lives of some men, some women, some students this very day. Lord, we love you. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.